0: I'm Andrew Murata, host of the Education Leadership and Beyond podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to episode 104 of the Google Teacher Tribe podcast, your source for the latest Google for Education news, tips, tricks, and ideas you can use in class tomorrow. I'm Matt Miller from Ditch That Textbook
0: and I'm Casey Bell from Shake Up Learning. And in today's episode, we actually have a couple of guests, y'all. You aren't going to believe it. We've been pretty bad about getting guests scheduled. So we do have a couple of special guests for you today. We have Matt's co-authors from Don't Ditch That Text. So I get to ask all kinds of good questions to find out more about these awesome strategies in this book. And of course, there are some Google News and Updates, I think you're going to be pretty interested to hear the ones that we've got to talk about today, as well as digging into some feedback from our listeners. That would be you. And as always, we have a few things to share from our blogs. So Matt, you ready to get this going?
1: I am ready. Let's get this going. All right. We're ready to drop some Google news and updates on you. There's always new things happening with Google tools. And so we've got a couple of things to share with you. One of them has to do with add-ons. So if you're familiar with add-ons, you know, these are kind of like the, the extra functionality that you can add to a specific Google tool. Like you've got sheets add-ons and slides add-ons and docs add-ons and all of that. So Google not too long ago um, announced that they're going to be doing add-ons across different platforms. So we're looking at G Suite add-ons all together instead of just isolating them within the, um, you know, within the specific Google products. So now um, they they say that this is releasing and is coming out, um, you know, Pretty much any time, uh, Casey and I have checked in some of our accounts, and we still haven't seen it quite yet. But basically, what this means is that some of the add-ons that you use are going to be accessible and available across multiple G Suite platforms. For instance, within Google Drive, within Gmail, within Calendar, you're going to be able to access some of these add-ons. So, some of the some of the examples that I'm seeing on this list that I'm familiar with are Zoom. You know, so you've got, um, you know, the, the Zoom video calling, uh, you've got Sign Easy, which is something that helps you sign um, documents. You've got Cisco, which does uh, WebEx and, you know, just a variety of different things. So it'll be interesting to see which of these add-ons end up being cross-platform like this that educators actually use. Um, So this may or may not be a big deal, but we did definitely want to let you know about it because um, you're going to be able to see some of these add-ons. If you're an add-ons user, you're going to be able to see some of these add-ons across multiple platforms.
0: Yes, I'm excited to see where they go with this. So we've had different naming conventions for add-ons. Essentially, some things that used to be labs inside Calendar and Gmail have sort of shifted into the G Suite marketplace. So I think they're trying to centralize that marketplace and give us a smoother way of rolling these things out. And like you, I'm kind of curious to what things may arise from this that will actually help educators. I do have it in a couple of places in my Google for Education account, one thing I'm really hoping I see added is sites. I would love to have add-ons for sites, but I don't see that yet. So fingers crossed someday. I, I I love that they're streamlining this though. Okay, y'all, I've got something you're going to be very curious about, and I'll have to tell you, it's slightly confusing for me, but I'm very curious. The English teacher in me wants to use the new originality reports and rubrics that are now what they call generally available for Google Classroom users. So there are a couple of different links in our show notes. One is to the G Suite update blog, and the other one is to the keyword blog from Google. So they've posted these in two different places they're also written slightly different. Of course, they're written for different audiences, but I've been skimming them both just to make sure I can understand this because I haven't actually tried it yet. And that's that's coming soon. I want to dig in and see exactly how this works. But I also want you to be aware of a few things. So Here's what has happened. They said they're announcing all of these updates at the, um, bet conference in London right now. So a lot of these things have been timed to coincide with that. And they're announcing two new betas to original. Originality reports. That's not a sentence that's hard to say at all. Betas, <laughs> right. plural. So, so the, they're adding a couple of things here. They're, you're adding the ability to have student to student matches, meaning you'll be able to have your own database of student submissions and check. Did little Johnny use his big brother's paper from last year? Those types of things. So I, I love that. I think that's great. You will be able to own. Um, The school will be able, your domain will own that database. It won't be owned by Google. Um, Although I'm very curious if Google will still have access to that data in the world of big data versus beta. There we go. I just came up with something new. (laughs) Nice. I told you this was complicated. So with the idea of originality reports, here's the kicker. You have to dig into these articles to find this. So teachers are going to get really excited about this. And it does say with this launch, instructors can enable originality reports on three assignments per class for free. Instructors whose admins have purchased G Suite Enterprise for Education get unlimited access to originality reports. So before you get too excited, they are slowly building this enterprise upgrade. This is this is an upgrade for G Suite for Education, which is free. But here we've got this little caveat here that we really have to worry about. So if you want to use all the features now, it seems like they are keeping some of the best features under this enterprise option. And that will take me into something I'm going to talk about a little bit later and some other upgrades that are coming. So that's the original originality reports. And we also have the ability to create rubrics inside Google Classroom. So, with the new rubrics feature, educators can now create a rubric while they create an assignment, reuse rubrics from a previous assignment rather than having to create one from scratch, and they can also export and import classroom rubrics to share them with other instructors. As well as grade student work with a rubric from both the student listing page and classroom's grading view, where instructors can select rating levels as they review the assignment. <sighs> I almost didn't make it through that paragraph. I had to read <laughs> that. It's so complicated. There's so many things to understand about this. So I'm excited to where this is taking us. Again, keep in mind, some of this is still beta. Some of this is not widely available yet, even if you sign up for beta. And then you got to have this enterprise option. So um, way to complicate things, Google. I'm, I'm a little upset about some of this being paid features, because one of the reasons why I love Google so much is that typically most of the things I want to use are free.
1: So Casey, I think both you and I know, and probably everybody listening to this knows that this whole originality reports like a plagiarism checker, that kind of thing. This is one of those things that people have been begging and begging and begging and begging for. And so, um, you know, for those of you that were really looking for it, the good news is that we're starting to see some progress on it. But like you were saying, it might not necessarily be available to everyone, which is, which is a bummer. I do like the idea of having the rubrics. You know, we've had the Gubric option, which connects with Doctopus, but to have something official within, um, within the Google sphere, I think is, is a really good, is a really good step forward.
0: Yes, I hope so. So I'm really excited to hear who has tried any of this, how it's working for you, anybody trying the beta option. The thing that I said I was going to get to, we don't actually have time to get to, but we'll talk about it soon, uh, about some of the new things that are coming to Chromebooks that may also cost us. So uh, just sort of making those, those two connections there that we're, we're getting a little bit of an upgrade option from Google on a few things. So we'll hit that next time. We just, we've got too much to share with you today.
1: Right, yeah, we've got, that's that's our problem, right? We've we just got too much stuff to share. So if you wanna see any of the links to anything we've talked about in this show or we'll talk about in this show, feel free to head to our show notes at googleteachertribe.com slash 104.
0: Okay, y'all. I am, of course, super excited to introduce our next guest. We haven't had any guests on the podcast in a while, so we are trying to catch up. And we actually have two new guests to share with you today who happen to be co-authors with that guy you know, Matt Miller. (laughs) They have written a book called Don't Ditch That Tech, Upgrade to a Differentiated Classroom Using Technology. And I realize you are both educators, but you have very different experiences as as educators. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you actually do. How many hats do you wear?
2: I think between us, we wear a lot of different hats. (laughs) Sorry about my voice. I've had a cold here in winterland of Indiana. I'm Angie Ridgeway, and I serve as a professor of secondary education at University of Indianapolis, not to be confused with Indiana University, (laughs) um, which my dentist confused the other day. (laughs) And we're a small liberal arts college in the city of Indianapolis. Most of my assignment uh, recently has been in educational psychology, but I also teach um, secondary methods. Um, Matt and I met each other through foreign language teaching circles because I'm a Spanish teacher. Um, I teach assessment of learning, and um, I run uh, a lot of the clinical portions, the full-time internship for our secondary programs. So I'm in the classrooms all the time, either myself as a teacher or coaching teachers.
3: My background um, in terms of how I got kind of started into the whole teaching thing and what I do um, is... I let's see. So I uh, am currently a history teacher in Indianapolis um, as well. Um, I currently teach a world history and then also a dual credit U.S. history class. Um, And generally kind of my background and how I got started in education, everything I actually started out in special ed. And then I kind of took that um, that licensure that I had, kind of combined it with UDL and um, a good let's see now, uh, four or five years of playing around with technology and seeing what it can do. Um, and kind of what I do now is I'm a teacher by day and then writer, blogger, traveler, speaker uh, by night. Uh, and so um, kind of living live those two lives is kind of what, what I do. So, mm-hmm.
0: So you are both some very busy people, but we probably need to clarify one thing because you have the same last name that many people listening may make the mistake and think that you are Mm -hmm. a married couple. And, um, (laughs) no, 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 we're not going to go there. So uh, Angie is the mother of Nate so we're we're talking to a mother-son team who have teamed up with Matt and written this amazing book. And I really am enjoying it. And as someone who is such a proponent of differentiation, that this is going to give us some practical ideas. Y'all know that's what we like here on the Google Teacher Tribe podcast. Let's hear more about this book. So I'm very curious when I see the name Don't Ditch That Tech. Uh-huh. I'm like, okay, where are you going with this? Okay, Matt usually ditches things, but of course so we don't want to ditch yeah. that text. Uh-huh. So, so explain a little bit about the name and how you came up with this.
3: Um, so it's actually my wife that came up with the name. Um, she was the one that suggested it, and and I also really really liked it too. You know, obviously, you know that that had to happen. Um, but. I uh, we were a little bit nervous actually about putting "don't" in front of it. Um, I think Matt, and, and I the remember editors were
2: pretty nervous yeah, about I, that. And I, yes,
3: and I remember <laughs> the editors being a little bit uh, concerned about it too, because like you're starting off with a negative. Um, but I think uh, I think the thing that really that that we like about it um, is that when we're talking about uh, the subtitle of the book, which is um, differentiation in a digital world, is that we're really um, kind of taking an overall. Um, kind of like a step back to think about how we're kind of philosophically approaching the classroom. And then what we really wanted to do was take that um, and kind of balance that with a lot of practical ideas about how you can actually um, accomplish uh, you know, those particular things. And, and the other thing that kind of went along with that, too, is we also, since it's a book about differentiation, we wanted the book to be differentiated, too. Um, and so we kind of came up with a model um, that people can use to kind of think about how they actually differentiate with technology in the classroom.
2: And I think one of the things that spoke to me with that title is, is I work with, um, I also work in a capacity here at the university as a faculty fellow. So I work in faculty development. So as I work with new professors and then new K-12 teachers, I see that it's pretty easy to become quickly frustrated with technology Uh if you don't think about both your entry point and then going in kind of step by step and little by little in terms of integrating that into your classroom or changing some of your pedagogical approaches. And so it's a statement to a teacher, like don't just throw it away because there's a tremendous power in harnessing technology and using that really to make, I mean, Matt just wrote a blog about this really to make your life easier and to save yourself time. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And let's, let's dig into that just a little bit. I know, um, that's one of the super helpful things, I think, that that people have told us that comes through all of this is that, um, you know, there's sort of this mistaken belief that differentiation is making dozens and dozens of versions of the exact same assignment and it's time consuming and it's frustrating and all of that. Um, and it, that's not necessarily the case. And Angie, you just mentioned the efficiency side of it, that, um, you know, one of the things that we that we really explored when writing this book was, can technology help us to do better differentiated instruction and more efficient differentiated instruction so that we end up saving time? And we found lots of examples of how that was the case. So um, do you guys want
3: to dive
1: into a couple of the things that, that that we talk about there?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of my, I, and one of my favorite things that we kind of talked about in the book, as well as, you know, things that I've kind of reflected upon, uh, since then is, and this, this is definitely true with Google apps, what I'm about to describe, uh, is that every G Suite app, um, has something called that, that I've now come up with, actually with a pretty clever name for, I think it's called copy paste mutate, um, which is you can take any Google doc, any Google drawing, uh, any, you know, like it can be anything, uh, and you can copy, paste it, and then add some kind of a mutation to it, uh, that, you know, adds or subtracts scaffolding for kids. And then, you know, all it then comes down to is just distributing it out. Um, so, you know, whether that's, um, you know, adding in pictures or gifs or YouTube clips, uh, vocab word banks, sentence stems, mm-hmm. um, adding in, you know, different kind of complexity to the questions, the number of multiple choice options. Changing uh, the language. Changing the language. <laughs> and the thing is that because of that copy-paste feature, I mean, it, it takes maybe two minutes mm-hmm. to add modifications. In, mm-hmm. And then you just, again, copy-paste mutate it again, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for more modifications. Mm-hmm. So that's a really, really quick and easy one. And it's made so easy by all the different Google apps as mm-hmm. well.
2: And that so, was really when... I talked to Nathan about the idea for the book. That was really where my head was going, that with technological tools, you can do this copy-paste-mutate so much more quickly if you think about it than if you're back with an old-fashioned, let's type something out on the computer, then let's print it, let's type another version for another student.
0: Yeah, You
2: don't even have to even go to all those steps no. because in three or four clicks, you can have versions that support three different groups of students or three different kinds of learners. And yeah. that is the power yeah. of technology and that we just have to teach teachers and we have to harness right for ourselves to meet our students' needs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's another piece to that, too, that um, I thought was so easy and um, used a tool that I wasn't familiar with. Um, that, that Nate contributed to the book and that had to do with whenever you've got to give different groups of instructions to different students, sometimes that can be a hassle, you know, trying to type text instructions or trying to record videos and it takes all of this time. Uh But, um, Nate introduced me to this tool, IORAD. That lets you create these really good step by step tutorials that really just do not take very much time at all. So you can really make these tutorials for different groups of students and different students with different needs. And you can make multiple of them in a very short
3: amount of time. Nate, did you want to touch on that real quick? Yeah, definitely. So, iorad, um, it basically kind of what it does is if you imagine like back back in the good old days of me being in the in the high school, uh, environment there, we whenever we went to a computer lab, um, we got these like you know printout sheets of like step by step instructions, right? And then if like this teacher was real sophisticated, they might have screenshots, um, you know, to get to go along with the instructions. Um, However, what iORed does is it makes, um, whenever you make a tutorial and you simply make them by um, actually doing the action on your screen, um, and it's both a Chrome app as well as a desktop app, um, and when you actually record them then and the student gets the tutorial and you can embed them, you can share them, you can email them, um, they have to actually do the exact same actions on the screen uh, that they would be doing in real life. Um, so it it takes that tutorial and it makes it interactive, which is amazing. And, uh, the thing that I love about it is that because there, there's so much in schools that is so tutorial based, whether that's, um, procedural knowledge knowledge for stations or whether it's, you know, like, um, how to solve like, you know, certain problems in algebra or, um, how to have, um, parents access an LMS, like all of those things can be made into IORAD tutorials. And what I, um, typically tell teachers, because again, a teacher's favorite price is free, um, is that, uh, the, the options that you have with IORAD for the free versions are pretty awesome. And then, um, what I do is if I have a tutorial that I'm not using anymore, I just delete it and, you know, make a new one. And they take very, very little time to actually make once you've kind of done your first one or two. Um, and then it's pretty straightforward.
0: I love that tool. This is new for me. I had heard this word before, wasn't really sure how to pronounce it either. So, yeah. <laughs> I am really excited to explore. Uh, is it LoRaD? Is that I, IORAD. I oh, IORAD. See, see. When you yeah. look at it capitalized, I think that's why I keep seeing. <laughs> that. Yes, IORAD because yeah. that's not that's not hard to yeah. say at and all. I use it, I use it for <laughs> sub
3: plans and um, flipped classroom settings too. Because like if you ever have like students going through a hyperdoc or a hyper slide or anything like that, it is an amazing tool for um, kind of foolproofing, you know, procedural items.
0: And y'all had so many like classroom application ideas. I love that this book is so focused on making this doable. And everything you've said so far is something that I find myself saying all the time about differentiation, that technology just levels the playing field, that it makes things so much easier for us to both differentiate, but also for students to modify even in their own capacity. And I feel like that's that's really the power. You know, when I think back to my classroom, when I didn't have access to very much technology, it was so much harder. And it was so much more obvious when you differentiated, or especially when you mo- modified for certain students, it was very obvious that they got a different assignment, or they got a different book to read or something else. And so I love the fact that we can add some anonymity into some of the modifications that we deliver and can differentiate in some different ways too. So as I was digging into the book and really getting the ideas, the foundational ideas that you have here, which are brilliant, by the way, I stumbled upon this thing called the five principles of Don't Ditch That Tech, which I feel like is a really good framework for everything we're talking about here today. So who wants who wants to help explain that?
3: Yeah, so the, with the five principles, there's um, – and I think we – as much as – and I know listeners uh, love technology and as much as I know that we all love technology, there are certain things that uh, technology can and it cannot do. And so what we wanted to try to do was really um, – kind of boil down to what we thought are, like, the underlying um, principles, uh, you know, the foundation of the book. Uh, So, first of all, and we'll kind of go through the five um, here, just in order of which they actually show up in the book itself. Um, we say technology should be uh, used to enhance students' learning and should rely on evidence-based practices. There's no substitute for great teaching or great student-to-teacher relationships. Like, And, and this basically, very simply, uh, if you don't have relationships and if you are not teaching based on any kind of science-based practice and you're just kind of throwing um, you know, technology noodles at the wall, uh, you're, you're basically wasting your time. Um, Like you can come up with and and find as many creative apps and, you know, ideas and, um, you know, but if if it's actually not backed by some kind of actual results, then you probably should just kind of leave it alone. Um, So the two, uh, the second one, uh, technology should help us work with content in interactive, meaningful ways. And this is um, for me, like, especially really, really true um, for, you know, my students and where I teach. Um, because a lot of my students don't have um, a lot of background knowledge and, um, you know, in history, it demands so much. So the more that I can get my students to feel like they're in, um, you know, and Matt, Matt talks lots about this. And um, and so does Dave Burgess as well about you know, like having students feel, you know, some kind of an experience and connection to their learning um, is really, really important. Uh, three, technology should help teachers and students cross varied developmental levels. Um, a lot of this comes down to like how you actually apply it um, in you know in, in the classroom itself, whether that's you know giving students choice or um, allowing students to you know basically express their preferences about how they're most interested in learning, um, as well as I think um, have students you know develop anything from a variety of you know uh, products or content or processes and, and giving lots and lots and lots and lots of options. Um, so four is technology should eventually empower students to be designers of their own learning, um, and this really goes to what I know that we both feel about differentiation. Um, Mom is that we uh, we think that the the ultimate point that we can get to is where students are uh, differentiating for themselves as to what they feel would help them be the most successful learners in the classroom, um, where the teacher is giving. Uh, that, and, and has that level of trust and control with them. Um, and then five uh, kind of goes to the, one of the later chapters in our books, and that's uh, technology should promote re- uh, reflection and metacognition. Um, There is nothing more student-centered than metacognitive practices (laughs) in a classroom, Uh, literally because uh, you can't do metacognition for students. Uh, They have to, uh, you know, you can't jump inside their brain and know what they know. Um, So anytime that you are getting to the point where you're having students think about their thinking, the better.
0: Exactly. And thank you for defining that. So just in case someone didn't understand, you know, this whole metacognition has become a big Word that everybody's talking about, but to think about your thinking is is huge. And sorry, Matt, I stepped on your toes a little bit there. What were you going to say?
1: You know, with that, um, you know that that was another big piece of the of the entire book. We had an entire chapter. Um, in fact, the the chapters instead of just being numbered the way that a lot of them do, we assigned a letter to each chapter. So the chapters end up spelling "Ditch It." And right after the, it, one of the chapters is an exclamation point. And the exclamation point chapter is one about teaching kids to reflect, which, you know, fits so nicely into that whole metacognition, thinking about your thinking, thinking about the way that you learn and the way that you study and all of that. And, um, Angie had so many, um, you know, so many really good contributions to this part. And so Angie, I was wondering if you could just share with us, because I love the fact that whenever we let kids reflect, they start drawing some of the, um, you know, drawing some of the connections between the dots themselves. And they do a lot of that stuff in their own minds and if we give them the opportunity to do it. So what were what were some of the some of the things that you remember that we can do, um or that that technology can maybe help us do to help kids connect those dots?
2: Um, Well, I think what I see a few things. One of the first things is with learners in today's society, they're not going to remember everything you teach them, and they're not going to be able to experience all the information that comes at them, either in your course or in school or in life. So what we have to be able to do is teach teach children, teach students to be thinkers because the information is being produced much more quickly than any consumer can consume or learn it, right? And so more important than ever is that they're metacognitive and they're reflecting on their learning because there's information that's going to exist a year from now in any field that didn't happen right now. Um, Some of the things that I think we can do with technology is I found with my students I can um, gather their thinking about their thinking so much more quickly and in how shall we say um, kind of a bundled fashion that I can process that because the different technological apps allow them to all be in one spot. It used to be, you know, they might write a reflection and you had 50 papers that you carried home and 20 of them blew out of your hands when you shut the car door, right? (laughs) But With, you know, with like a Google Form reflection, in a very quick when you pull that into a, a Google Sheet, in in a few moments' time, even between course sections, you can say, "Uh oh, my students have a misconception." When I see the next course section, I need to teach that differently. Or, "Oops, we went the wrong way." When I see them tomorrow, I have to modify my lesson. Or, this group of kids is struggling, so I've got to support them differently. Um, and so I've been using a lot of Google Forms. Uh, Penzu Journal is very good for having students journal if they're into that. Um, Nathan and I both use DotStorming, which is more like a voting app, but it does promote reflection because they have to reflect as they vote for preferences or classroom guidelines or they vote on what material they understand best and don't understand. And here's where we turn it over to the learner so we might think I might think when my students come in and they say Dr. Ridgway I really need this to learn the material we at first blush we might say oh my gosh I've just been handed another task but the reality is you have just empowered that student to have agency and ownership in his own learning and that is such a powerful skill for that student in the rest of his or her life because then they learn to be advocates not just in learning situations but advocates for themselves in their employment, in their collegial relationships, in their personal relationships. So there's a lot of power in teaching students to really think about the way that they learn and they interact in classroom situations because it promotes transfer, right? And what we know from educational psychology is that students who are good at transfer are really good at learning. And so when you show them, you guide them in making those connections between disciplines, you're guiding them and becoming really strong learners.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, some of, some of this that I, that I've done in my own classroom recently has been literally um, just problem solving on the fly where I had a couple of students um, who had, cause I teach at a high school level had concussions and they could not read um, text on the computer. And so uh, what I did is I just, took, you know, a very my very simple computer microphone and just recorded uh with audacity just the actual audiobook. Um you know, versions of the chapters that I was having the student read, students read, and it took me like I think 15 minutes a chapter mm-hmm. um when I when I was doing it uh today. Um and now the students will come to me and say, "Hey, you know, is there any way that you could record those on audiobook again?" That was really really helpful. So um a lot of it is again like when you can show students that you're problem solving yourself and trying to make this an accessible and, um, you know, easy platform for them to learn, uh, good things happen.
0: That's amazing. And and the fact that you're seeing results, not only that you're reaching all learners, but you're finding ways to connect with them and how that relationship is going to grow because they recognize that you're doing this to help them. You know, I think that you, you hit the the nail on the head with that and going back to that whole, you know, teaching students how to learn is the best skill we can give them. You know, I think Angie, you were talking about the fact that, you know, it's so hard for students to just learn one thing because it changes all the time, especially when it comes to technology. And I think that's, that's where I struggle in my role because I do still have to teach a lot of how to, but I try to pull that back because if I teach even a teacher, how they do something in Google Docs. It's probably going to change tomorrow anyway. So, you know, we, we have to be able to empower the students. And I think that's what's so fantastic about all of these ideas and strategies. And I'm, I'm busy taking notes and trying to get all these links in our show notes for everyone. So just so everyone listening knows, we're going to, we're going to have this in the show notes for you at googleteachertribe.com slash 104. I want to know, is there, something in this book, some really fantastic strategy or lesson that excites you more than others. Do you have a favorite?
3: Um, I, I think out, out of like me personally, the, the lessons that I enjoy more than any other teaching with students, um, I'm sure mom, you have your own favorites that you've done, um, are the ones where um, I, have gotten to the point with certain groups of, of kids by the end of the year, and I'm really letting them show what they want, um, or show their knowledge in, in a way that's comfortable, um, to them. That's so, exactly
2: what I was going to say. <laughs> um,
3: and, and, and like one of my favorite things to do is we, we have a couple of longer texts that I have to read in my upper level course. Cause it's kind of like a college course for um, my current juniors. And there's one, um, project where they've encountered these choose uh, choose your own journey stories the entire semester. And then I turn it over to them and I have them use primary sources and secondary sources to develop historically accurate choose your own journey stories. And the results I get are just silly, awesome, um, because students can, can really show what they know. But then I start opening up even more um, I mean, uh, basically, it's going to sound very, very strange uh, for, from a history teacher's perspective. Is that I got rid of students writing essays, mm-hmm. um, and we have a whole blog post on this about eighteen alternative yes. essays yes. out there. Um, and it, because basically, in, in, in my way of thinking about it is like this: is that I'll have very, very few students who go on and actually major as history majors in, in you know in college, right. um, and. There's no reason then that I should be subjecting them to the same torment that I've now had to endure all the way almost through a master's degree. Um, and so uh, what I try to then, you know, do is set up a rubric and, um, you know, kind of in some cases I co-design that rubric with students mm-hmm. Um where they feel comfortable showing the knowledge that they've gained about mm-hmm. a certain topic or difficult concept in a way that's preferential to them. Mm-hmm. So then I end up with everything from sketch notes to um, hip hop music videos to uh, I, I had a student w- who used a, um, a very simple non-coding uh, video game. He made an interactive video game that taught like by playing the video game the lesson that we were trying to achieve by reading the book. So like, and I'll get like anything under the sun. But the 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 amazing thing is, is that the students are expressing their knowledge in a way that they can show mm-hmm. off what they know, and that's comfortable mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those are the lessons that I've enjoyed the most by far. Yeah,
2: and I think I was gonna, I would have said the same thing um, because I think students feel so stressed at times to write the perfect paper, right? Uh-huh. And it tends yeah. to be the perfect paper. And obviously, we have a lot of papers at the collegiate level. But what I've come to do is, like Nathan said, to be very transparent in my expectations or to build the expectations in partnership with the students, because then they start to understand what quality work looks like. Again, a skill that they can transfer to their work or academic life. Um, And then to empower them to think about how they really express their knowledge best whether it's verbally auditorily kinesthetically and and then to give them the freedom to do so and matt made a good point in one of our conversations about you know you do have to be careful that you just don't open the barn gates Mm -hmm. or barn doors
3: you want you want to start really really small
2: because most students are not used to having that much freedom and it might be paralyzing to them
3: um, so I find
2: yeah. that, you know, I start with three to four choices and then I'll say to the students, I'm open for all kinds of options. Uh-huh. It doesn't have to be one of these three or four. You can think big. You can think differently. But then I also have to remember that we did an advocacy project in December where my students were advocating for a marginalized group. And one of my student groups, I know I text you about this, Matt. One of my student groups was so intentional on doing a brochure. <laughs> and I, oh, right. up I remember that time about the brochure. And finally, once I t- debriefed with them, they wanted to do a project about mental health issues in collegiate athletics. Once I figured out why they wanted to do the brochure, they kept saying, but Dr. Ridgway, our audience, are coaches and part time faculty members and people who aren't going to go to a website, but people that we could hand information to on the field, on mm-hmm. the court, and they can take it away. So we linked it to a website. But so you have to be willing to not have your ideal in mind, but their ideal necessarily. Oh, uh, and this is
3: such. This is I could run with this idea for uh, for a thousand miles. Um, because my students, in terms of how students study nowadays. Um, like One of the struggles of my students in particular um, that a lot of kids do now, and if you're not familiar with the world of live streaming out there and you have not looked up what Twitch or Mixer is or YouTube live streaming, I highly encourage you if you are a teacher to look at it because we need to start thinking about the mediums that we are interacting with our kids on And I know you, Matt, just did a blog post recently, or I think it may have been even a a Twitter chat about using social media in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what I do is I live stream with my students on YouTube when we're reviewing for really, really big tests, because that's the way that students like to interact with content. Um, And it's it's and again it's one of those things where you can show students that you're developing as a teacher as well that you go on to a site like Streamlabs and you figure out how to do live streaming and then when students are fine they're like you're on twitch like, you're live
2: streaming like
3: whoa. and they're like wow like mr Ridgeway might kind of be cool um <laughs> and, and and so then like uh, and then now you're meeting them at their own medium um and the thing is too is that um, i i think also my my wife the other day you said you you need to keep office hours and i'm like Students don't play office hours. They they don't they don't have a concept of that, mm-hmm. right? Like, like um, the confined time. Yes, yeah, so like yeah. the confined time. Like that's such an archaic Passover of such an old handed down Eurocentric model of how we think about you know getting re- reaching out for assistance. Mm-hmm. Like what students do now is they're going to YouTube. They'll look up help. Right. And so like I tell my students, you want to text me, you know, through a mind, um, you go for it, twenty four seven. I got a two and a half year old. I'm probably up anyways. Um, and, and so, yeah. <laughs> um. And so, like, I, I think that we need to, like, have a serious thought about with differentiation, about not necessarily thinking about, like, you know, and, again, differentiation is opening up access and it's giving students different, very, you know, various models to interact with and products and, you know, and processes. But it's also about thinking about the ways that are most preferential for our students um, to, to interact with all those things in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, man, I could. and, and Yeah. 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 No, this is this has been
1: fantastic. Um, lots of lots of really good things to chew on. We got some new tools and some new strategies that we can use. That's, you know, everything that we hoped that it would be. Um, if you want to be able to find Nate and Angie online, my goodness, there are lots and lots of places. So um, you know, uh there's they they have a great podcast called the Make It Till Friday podcast. So you can definitely go check that out. There's the blog Teaching from the Ridge. Um, which is super easy to find is just teachingfromtheridge.com. And um, there's just, uh, you know, probably, you know, social media is a super easy way too. What's the best place for people to get in contact with you guys?
3: Um, Probably Twitter. We're most active on there Mm -hmm. um, just because we both do come from primarily secondary backgrounds. And Mm -hmm. I found that a lot of secondary teachers are on Mm -hmm. Twitter um, compared to Instagram. Um, So our Twitter is real simple. It's at teachfromridge, uh, just like how it sounds, all one word. Um, and then, uh, we also do have an Instagram as well. Um, and then, uh, obviously our website, our our blog. So, um, we're, we're primarily, primarily across those three mediums.
1: Excellent. All right. This has been great. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of unfair for me to say, because I'm one of the co-authors, but you guys really did drop some, some really good, uh, things for us to think about in here. And, um, I think, I think I can speak for Casey that this, this was, this was a good illuminating conversation.
0: Yes, I agree that what you're giving us here is not our typical podcast episode, but I hope everyone will enjoy this because I think it goes much deeper than what a lot of people expect. And that's a good thing. So thank you so much for helping us take this deep dive into meaningful differentiation and how technology can support that.
2: Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Matt.
3: Yes, thanks, Casey. Thanks, Matt.
1: All right, folks. How great was that? Lots and lots and lots of good resources from Nate and Angie. I knew that they were going to bring it. And so since we've had so much from them, we're going to get to one quick mailbag thing here. So we got a voice message from Melanie Sampson-Cormier, and she is from Edmonton, Canada, and she has a question about Google Classroom. So Melanie, go ahead and take it.
2: Hi, Matt and Casey. This is Melanie Sampson-Cormier from Edmonton, Canada. Love the show, by the way. I'm loving Google Classroom, having made the switch from Moodle, but I really miss how Moodle is so visual. Within Moodle, I'm able to add HTML and make the page look exactly like I need it to. And uh, where I teach grades five and six, and I have a lot of low readers, I
0: find that it can be difficult for some students to navigate Google Classroom and find what they're looking for. So I was just wondering if anyone has any tips about making Google
2: Classroom more visual or easier to navigate for students who have difficulty with text. Thanks.
1: Ah, yes. The Google Classroom question, especially when you're uh, working with students who might not do so well with all of the text, because if you think about it, Google Classroom really is pretty texty. You know, there's there's an awful lot of it that runs off of text. And so if we can make it more visual, you know, I think that's, a, that's definitely a good way to go. As she was asking this, one of the first places um, my mind went was emojis. You know, adding emojis to titles of things, adding emojis to topics, um, adding them to the you know the names of just about anything that you can, and even um, you know even within the the descriptions, you know whenever you can put those in there, and then just say, look for the smiley face, or look for the bullseye, or look for you know whatever. Um, emoji that you put in. That's one little quick way. Might be something, Melanie, that you're already thinking about, but that's one of the first places that my mind went.
0: You know what I did? I went to my go-to for anything that has to do with Google apps for littles. And I went to Christine Pinto's blog and found a great post that she has on creating some visuals in your assignment titles for students. And she points out the fact that They can read numbers. And if you've been doing that strategy, any way of numbering your assignments, which is a fabulous strategy for everyone, that number can also help those little. So they can find those numbers. And she does point out a few different things, but teaching them more visually how to click and where to click. But we're going to include a link to that in our show notes at googleteachertribe.com slash 104. So you can check that out and see some of Christine's ideas.
1: Yep, We knew that Christine would have something. She's been doing Google Classroom with kindergartners for a little while now. So definitely go check that out.
0: Well, this has been an action-packed episode, y'all. And, you know, we've got lots of things to share from the blogs, too. So I'm going to hit these very quickly. But uh, see, the day this podcast comes out on a Monday is the day before my series called It's Not About Google will end. So it's a four-part podcast podcast and blog series all about how to create dynamic learning experiences with Google tools in the classroom. There's a fabulous little freebie that you can get with that. I also have just updated my post on how to organize assignments in Google Classroom. So if you're trying to make sense of the topics and what to name them and how to organize it, Got six different ideas and some tips in there for you. And one quick thing to note, I am facilitating a free book study of the Shake Up Learning book and it starts February 13th.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Wow, that's good stuff right there. That's that's packed. Um, I've got a couple things to share real quick that are happening uh, over at Ditch That Textbook. For one, we just published a post called 10 Social Media Inspired Learning Activities. If your students are excited about different social media activities type um, you know, apps and accounts and everything, but you don't want them to actually use those social media accounts within learning. Um, these are some ideas that you can use. There's a bunch of Google Slides templates that you can make a copy of and assign directly to your students. And then I also just published a guest post by Tom Gibson on the blog called Kids blogging in math class. Why and how? So he's got students blogging about math, which is super cool. And he lists Google Sites as one option for doing those blogs. So uh, links to all of those posts, of course, are at GoogleTeacherTribe.com slash 104. All right, Tribe, that wraps up another episode of the Google Teacher Tribe podcast. Again, special thanks to my co-authors in the book, Don't Ditch That Tech, Nate and Angie Ridgeway, who brought it. Yeah, just gave us all sorts of things to think about and to try in our classrooms. So um, we so appreciate you being a listener. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, we would love to have you subscribe. If you have subscribed and you've listened for a while and you're still listening, then you might consider writing a review on iTunes, which helps us to get found by other teachers. So again, thanks for listening and we will see you on the next episode of the Google Teacher Tribe podcast. Bye y'all.